welcome everyone to the Social Work Stories podcast, the first episode for 2019. I'm Mim Fox and co-hosting with me as normal is the wonderful Liz Murphy. Hi Liz. Hello Mim. Hello everyone. Did you have a good break Liz? I've just come back to work and I feel I feel really relaxed, like my head is is totally relaxed still. I can uh, string a sentence together, not that you probably just heard that. Um, <laughs> but this morning as I put on my shoes for work, I found beach sand oh. in it. I'm carrying around a little bit of my holiday. You know, all of our international listeners right now are really jealous of oh. the fact that we're in Australia and have our beautiful summer beach holidays. Mm. I personally went away to experience a different beach every day on my holiday. Really? And um, came back nice and nourished from that. So um, ready to go for 2019. Feeling frisky? Slightly, just slightly. Um, We've had some really interesting comments uh, from people listening to our podcast. Really struck me that lots of people are saying that this is actually a bit like supervision, listening to our podcast, uh, and that especially for people who don't get supervision, regularly this is filling a bit of a void I was thinking about how we've been talking quite a bit about the tribe the social work tribe and how some social workers out there are in really isolated positions in Australia we have a lot of social workers working in rural and remote communities I'm sure that's the same around the world where you've got one social worker and a whole range of different other professionals they're working with but they're the sole social worker can be so isolating Mm. for them. So I guess I wanted to do a shout out to those listeners and say, um, we never set out to do a supervision podcast, did we, Liz? No. No. But I've got to say, I'm so pleased if that's the void it's filling. Absolutely. And even if you do work in a department or an agency, supervision can be so private. Absolutely. So the fact that you and I are sitting down and unpacking a case like this, it might be the first time for some or it might be really enlightening for others about how you can go about talking through a case, picking out elements of it, the things that resonated for you, the, the things that struck you in terms of practice, the linking it to theory that we sometimes do. Yeah, I, I had never thought of it either, but it does actually make sense. That's actually really true that actually um, a lot of social workers don't actually know how to do a case analysis, Mm. how to break down a case and discuss it component by component. So to be able to provide that for people almost as an example, I think is actually really great. Another thing is just with the tribe that we talk about and that we love working with. Uh, we've, um, We've talked a lot about individuals coming and joining the tribe and um, with all our our listeners we've been looking at who's been listening around the world and it looks like there's a lot of people from the states which is fantastic a large group of people from the UK which is brilliant and then other countries as well and we're really really here creating a community of practitioners Mm. a community um, of social workers but also a community of people beyond social work who actually are working with the same vulnerable people all over the world whether they're individuals whether they're families societies that um, are doing this really hard going work every day it's a community of practice isn't it really Ah, nice yes So I'm going to pick up on the international theme. Yeah. Um, Mim, Justin, our podcast 
producer. Producer. Uh, was actually, his holiday was spent in Italy and the UK. And Deeply jealous of that. In between, rolling from one table to a gelato, <laughs> yes. manages to tweet and let people know that he's coming over to the UK and three wonderful social workers volunteered their stories for him and he um, had wonderful conversations with them. I'm going to focus on one of them tonight. And this is a really interesting child protection case. And it's really interesting because it, it sounds like it started off as a benign referral that then developed into... Uh, highly complex and it I, I kind of got a few chills listening to it and one that probably was like an ethical minefield for the social worker but one that she will be reflecting on I reckon till her retirement and one that actually demonstrates real tenacity and commitment to the care of these the young people and the parent in this family um, and I learnt lots from this one. So let's have a listen to it and then we'll come back and then we will do some unpacking. Love it. I came into social work as an idealistic um, student. I had had some great experiences on placement um, and I had done some really, really fantastic work in a very protected way. Um, and I stepped into child protection frontline work um, with a very, very, very clear understanding that I was there to save and to support and to uh, cure and to, um, and to receive great thanks for that, I suppose. Um, when I reflect back on it now, that's probably what was going on. Um, I very quickly um, came across uh, the, the messy reality that I've talked about. Um, which I wouldn't change for a second. It is the most amazing job in the world. Um, the story that stands out for me is one that has stuck with me um, ever since, and I still think about uh, the children involved now. Um, I actually keep in touch with them through Christmas cards um, because of the nature of the case and how impactful it was, and um, th that for me was appropriate. So I'll tell you a little bit about them. So I was in my first three months of practice um, I was given my first 10 cases and one of them was a what appeared to be a fairly innocuous uh, what we would call child in need case which is where a child's you know there's some concerns but there aren't child protection worries as such um, why don't you go out and visit this family um, the dad is having some trouble getting um, the kids into school um, there's three girls um, and there is a grown-up uh, brother living at home as well um, they're a little bit reclusive, you know, there might be some issues, but, um, you know, ultimately it's about, you know, not attending school regularly and, and that's all there is to it. It should be fairly straightforward, uh, child in need case. So I went to the house, um, I met the family and I quickly discovered that actually this was not a straightforward case. Um, the children in question um, had not left the family home in over three months. Um, there was an 11-year-old, a 13-year-old and a nearly 16-year-old. And uh, when I walked in, um, the children were lined up, um, presented to me, and it came, it became quickly apparent to me that their parent had uh, either an underlying mental health condition or a, a learning need or a learning, something in their cognition and their understanding was not quite on point to me. 
And the more that we kind of talked and, you know, I spent a couple of hours there, I felt that the situation was very, very wrong and that something was not right within the family. So I had this case for about a year. And during that year, I spent more and more time with them. I would visit the um, family home and I would be granted access, bearing in mind that there was no um, child protection uh, you know, leverage within this case, I, you know, it was all done on a voluntary basis and it was about gaining the trust of the family. Um, I spent time with the children, I found out that they had their own language, they were talking to one another in um, their own kind of uh, dialect and using words that they'd made up. Um, they were no longer attending school um, and the process in that family had been that um, as they reached high school age, um, the parent was unable to uh, let them go out into the world and felt that they needed to be protected. So um, they would be homeschooled. And homeschooling in the UK has got quite a loose basis for um, how we run things. They'll be checked in on now and again. And if there's actually, there's actually quite a, a loose framework around it, more less so than you would think. Um, welfare officers had become unable to get into the family home and they couldn't sort of assess how the homeschooling was happening. So that's where I had come in it soon became apparent that those children were not learning anything. Um, they were spending lots and lots of time on Wikipedia, and as a reward for spending certain amounts of time on Wikipedia, they, had, they were able to pet the family cat. Uh, you know, they were receiving very little stimulation. They had no food in the fridge. They were all sleeping on a mattress in one bedroom uh, with, one of, with the oldest child sleeping on a sun lounger in the living room. Um, and they were spending all of their time and their lives in a small council block, two bedroom flat with the windows shut. Um, they had hair that was matted to the scalp um, and they were in really poor physical condition. Um, and there was issues around continence. There was lots of things going on for these children. Um, so I gathered and documented evidence to this um, effect. And one of the most difficult things about being a social worker and neglect cases is um, communicating the information. Well, the house was messy. Well, what does that mean? What did it smell like when you walked in? What was the feeling? What, what, what was the atmosphere like? You know, what kind of food was on offer? It's, it's capturing the story of what's happening and, and showing that in your uh, chronology. It's really quite difficult. Um, and I had to challenge a lot of professionals in that case, which as a newly qualified social worker was extremely difficult for me, more so than working with the family. Um, I managed to get the trust of the children by talking to them about things they were interested in, like astrophysics or Charles Darwin or uh, eugenics or, you know, these are the sorts of things these kids have been researching the internet and felt that they knew quite a bit about. They felt that they were um, really intelligent super beings and that actually they wouldn't give anybody the time of day that they didn't feel was intelligent. So I built a rapport with them on things like University Challenge and, and um, you know, gained their trust in that way. But the, the hardest thing about the case was 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 going into the schools that these children had attended, looking back over the historical records of the failings that had taken place, and challenging um, statements such as, "Well, that's just the ex-family, you know, that's just how they are. They've always dropped out of school." Um, in 2014, in a in a UK city, you know, that's not appropriate anymore. Um, we don't just accept that this is what's going on at surface level and not look at what's happening underneath. So I received a lot of resistance um, from the children's GP, uh, who was adamant that you know things had presented okay when they'd when they'd come in, um, despite my concerns about their health issues and parental mental health issues. 
uh, school who had accepted that this was the way of things and that these children were to drop out and come in every 17 days or so and then disappear altogether from the face of the earth. Um, and other associated professionals who did not want to persevere with trying to get behind the door of the family home. Um, ultimately, the outcome for that case is that it went from child in need uh, very quickly and it escalated to court. Um, I had to stand up in court for the first time and um, I had to talk about what these children were missing out on and evocate that in court. And um, it's really, really rare for children of the age that they were at the time it went to court. The eldest one was nearly 17. Um, and we got a care order for all three of those children um, based on the fact that they hadn't left the house, uh, based on the fact that they had no understanding of how to interact with this, the outside world, and based on the fact that when their father was put on the stand, um, when asked, when was the last time you all left the house together, there was no answer that could be given. Um, he actually talked about a film that they'd seen, which maybe came out about 10 years ago. Um, this family was frozen in time um, through parental kind of grief and lots of things that were going on. And she, when talking to the children, you know, the things that they, or she was saying to me, um, when talking to the parent, things that he was saying to me, it became apparent that the parent had frozen the children in time with, with, with them as well. Um, and there was no way this family was, was moving forward. Um, so the children uh, were subject to care order. Uh, but unfortunately, that was not the end of the story. Um, I thought that, you know, the day that the care order had gone through, I went home and I sat there in my pyjamas at seven o'clock at night doing case notes like you do. And um, I received a call from uh, the doctor's surgery and um, the care order had gone through. It had not been complied with and the children had gone on the run with the parent. So bearing in mind they shouldn't have left the house in months and months and months to then be snatched from your bed or your sun lounger um, to then have to go uh, and, and hide out at an unknown location um, and effectively be you know, searched for by children's services and removed in a very, very traumatic way um, at the behest of that parent. That was another uh, experience of trauma they had to go through. Um, and it was really, really difficult to experience that with them. And I had to be the one to go at whatever time it was, early hours of the morning, I said, I will come and I met them and I said, this is what's happening. You know, I've explained to you this may happen um, and now we need to go to our placements. And because they trusted me and because they knew me, you know, we were able to do that. Um, and they ended up coming to their placements about four o'clock in the morning. Um, and on arrival, promptly had a discussion with the carers about, I think it was something to do with physics and Newton's law or something like that. They were, they were okay when they got there. Um, and it was quite a surreal moment for me. Um, so those children spent quite a long time in, in care and um, their case was contested. And um, there were lots and lots of issues around their rights and their vulnerabilities and um, you know whether they could ever return home. And the outcome was that they could not return home. And um, actually, as the children spent more time in foster care, they developed a voice. Um, they were able to talk and express their own views. And I did a lot of therapeutic you know, just games with them, just made stuff up, like knew what they liked, cared about them, like was interested in what they were interested in and knew what they would respond to. And I just used to make up games that we could play that would help them um, talk about their emotions and you know, pick out feelings from jigsaws and you know, what feeling is this that we feel today? And they responded really well to that. Um, 
during the time that they were in care as well, I also developed a relationship with the parent that was extremely fractious, but at the same time, there was an element of respect and an element of exchange. Um, I actually received a Christmas present from this parent. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know what might be in the box when I opened it, but there was something in there. Um, I had mentioned uh, that I needed a new mug, you know, a few months before, just in passing, trying to make conversation. And this parent had remembered that and six months down the line had bought me a mug for Christmas, although I'd removed their children. And it's these complex relationships that you have where you are pushing and you're pulling and actually there's a lot of pain and a lot of anger and a lot of sadness involved, but you are consistent with them and they respect you. And actually you respect them despite whatever stuff they have going on. And I shared some really, really, really intimate moments with that parent as that practitioner. Um, yeah, stuff that you, you really have to unpack because you think, you know, there's, there's, a level of, um, there's a level of rapport there, even when they're so angry with me that they are, you know, threatening me or whatever. It, you know, it happens. So never forget that. And actually, that relationship with that parent, they remember things that you've said months before and they know what it feels like in that moment. The way you tell them something or the way you explain something to them, they might, you might never see it, but there will be a certain way that they think about you and you can preserve their dignity in moments that are really, really difficult. And there was definitely moments with that family where I had to be extremely uh, mindful of that and, um, and get through some very tough situations. So um, anyway, the children were in care for a, a really long time um, and they received intensive psychosocial support from a leading psychological organization um, in the country. Um, over time and over the years, we have seen those children return to school, participate in full-time schooling, um, express you know, interest in further education. One of them went round a, uh, on a trip to a leading UK university, one of the top two universities in the UK, um, and is currently thinking about uh, applying for uh, attending at one of those universities. These children have friends, they play and um, they have functioning lives. They're always gonna need more support than other children. Um, they have additional needs that have been identified, but ultimately their lives have been transformed. And um, the children made a statement uh, many, many years after they were in care, and they advised that they didn't really think they wanted to return home because they knew things wouldn't have changed. And their progress and their understanding of what happened to them, and their understanding that you know that wasn't okay and it wasn't normal, um, it developed so much and they do have a chance at life now. Um, and I think that is one case that has stayed with me um, beyond all others, just because of the, the fear and the challenges from professionals, the absolutely unique circumstances the family lived in and just this, these children's personalities, you know, they were just one in a million and you'll never forget them. Can I start with the fairly innocuous referral statement? Please do. Uh, look, we've all had them. <laughs> we have. And I, I don't know whether someone, there's a PhD in this, but sometimes I think the more benign and vague a referral sounds like, the higher the likelihood it's going to blindside you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Which in this case I think has proven the point 
going from a straightforward, as she called it, a straightforward, just checking out on a family around school attendance to meeting a family where the three young people hadn't left the house for three months. I know, amazing. Oh, but I loved her gut instinct. The minute she walked in the door, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall for this one? Oh, look, just the um, control it would have taken her to not grimace. No. To not do a sharp intake of breath. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, because it would have been incredibly confronting to have sat in this flat. Yeah. I think she mentioned that, you know, that the, the, the young people's hair was matted to their head. That's right. I'm pretty sure I heard there were some incontinence going on. The windows had not been opened. Right. right? So the smell in that apartment. It was not going to be pretty. It wouldn't have been pretty. And um, everyone and the children were presented to her. So this act was being played out as though everything was normal. Yeah. And there she is sitting with this very keen gut instinct that's saying, uh, there's nothing normal happening here. Absolutely. <laughs> and and so much was resting on this, right? Yeah. Because she had to keep the door opening every time she came in because she then talked about the rapport that she built with this family. Yeah, that would have taken time, right? It, look, I'm pretty sure she said something about a year of working with this family yeah, and the patience of doing that, but of not kind of giving the impression that she was judging. Yeah, that's right. That's right because she she actually couldn't afford to have this family offside, Just regardless of where this case was going to end up. She needed to be working with the parent on the welfare of those children. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that played out beautifully when she later on talked about. The work that she was doing with the, the children around connecting with them around their points of passion, I'm pretty sure I heard eugenics. Oh, yeah. You know, knowing about, you know, having conversations around eugenics. Um, she would have gone away and done some research, I she? reckon. Yeah, so when she first heard what those areas of interest and passion were from those kids, gone away, done some research and come back armed with a way to build rapport. Yeah. Yeah. And then that lovely weaving of creative play to do some therapeutic work as well. Well, these were three, and we can say kids, but let's be honest, they were adolescents. Yeah. Right? 11, 13 and 15. But they did not have playtime. Like you remember she was saying patting the cat was a reward for being on the computer. Like... There wasn't a lot of play happening in this closed environment. So her playing these games around topics of interest for them was probably like amazing for them to be engaging in that way. I want to talk for a second, Liz, about social workers as witnesses because I think this is one of the really key roles that social workers play that uh, we often don't ascribe... um, enough focus to I think um, often we talk about what's the outcome of that witnessing and um, and this is this case is a pure example and we can talk about documentation and the court case in a second but the process of witnessing a family in this moment in this space being around each other communicating with each other communicating with her over a period of time that's one of the most crucial roles she played. Mm. And being able to actually then reflect back on that 
through her documentation that then made it to court via a legal subpoena, um, I think was actually really, had she not really borne witness in that way, been very present in the moment with the family as she went along, I don't know that she could have reported back Mm. to the level that she did. It takes a real... um, almost a mindful practice of being in the moment with the family and really being a very clear, non-judgmental witness. And I like the way she used her senses as well. So yeah. she talked about the smell yes. of the place, probably of the children, yeah. um, probably at the, the sleeping quarters. Uh, yes, the sun lounger versus the couch. That's right. The mm. lack of food, the, the, the stale air. She yes. was very descriptive and uh, both in her storytelling but also, as you say, in the documentation. And I think she really said something along the lines of that was the stuff that really helped with the advocacy. So, Liz, students often are not are getting frustrated when they're on their placements and having to write case notes and their supervisors are making them write them and rewrite them and rewrite them over and over again. And often the supervisors are saying things like, well, I'm not sure I'm really understanding what it is you observed, what it is you witnessed and I'm needing more detail here, or you need to be more factual there. And I think a case like this really actually shows how important that documentation is. It's actually a real skill, I think, to be able to capture the essence of what you're witnessing and observing in a dynamic with a family, but also in an environment. Absolutely, and she would have known from the minute she walked into that place that it's probably going to end up in court. Yes. So these are notes that she would have been able to have used both as evidence but to have spoken to them when she was a witness. I think it's one thing to have integrity with what you're doing verbally in a moment with a family or with an individual. It's another thing to have integrity about what you write. Mm. And I think that's actually what's crucial here, that she had integrity. What she had written down was so much a reflection of what had gone on that she could clearly stand there in court and, and speak to that, speak to her documentation. I've got the image of her writing her notes at 7pm in her pyjamas. Oh, God, when she said that, that just cut me to the core. <laughs> I mean, I'm forever saying to students, self-care, take care of yourself. When you're a student, it's a precious time. When you get out there, you're going to be working nonstop. That just exemplified it for me. Yes. Broke my heart. Yes. But I would imagine there would have been a sense of urgency about capturing some of that stuff as Absolutely. well. Yeah, there's yeah. a timely issue there, isn't there? Yes. That actually it could be subpoenaed at any minute and at that point she loses control of her documentation. Yeah, yeah. And I think she held up, she was in sharp contrast to the neglect of other professionals. That really broke my heart too, to hear that this family had been essentially written off by people who one would have hoped would have been a little bit more present in their life and been a little bit more concerned about what was going on i.e. teachers, i.e. GP. And so here's this very new graduate social worker who, as you say, Mim, was bearing witness and caring enough to the point where she wanted 
to actually go beyond. I think she talked about they didn't look beyond the surface. No, that's right. Isn't that our role to actually go deeper? It's 2014. That's not an excuse to actually say it's such and such a family. But don't you want don't you want teachers and GPs to be looking beyond the surface? Like that's so frustrating to hear that to think that this family with so many obvious risk factors going on, your GP and your school teacher, you would hope would have been alert to those issues enough to actually be saying something at that I point. I thought that was interesting about the loophole with the homeschooling, though. That oh, was that really was interesting. interesting. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, obviously for our international audience, every country has their own uh, guidelines and regulations around homeschooling, some more lenient and some more um, specific than others. Uh, but where... Where the social work values sit in amongst that topic for homeschooling, I think is really interesting. This whole case brings up for me the issue of what do we think about social workers removing children? Now, we're, in, we're speaking from Australia, Liz, where we have a really clear history of social workers being involved in the removal of children. We have the stolen generation with our Aboriginal um, uh, population here. We have uh, the forced adoptions in the 60s that happened for unwed mothers. Um, internationally, we have uh, social workers being implicated in um, Nazi Germany, in South Africa, in um, a whole range of different countries around the world in different times. Social workers have removed children. What do we think about how social workers are still doing that and sitting with their values, their professional values of trying to be there for the family for what they are saying they want and need. I mean, let's remember in this situation, you had the children and the parents saying, no, we don't want to actually be separated. We don't think that is the best option for us. Mm. That's the case for most families who find themselves split up through a mandatory process in any of our countries. Look, it is. It's, it's the, that's the minefield that I was referring to in the introduction, and I think we'll probably have lots of stories that will touch on this issue. So we can't cover it all tonight. But in addition to what you say, I guess I want to honour the care that this social worker showed in working with this family. Yes, definitely. Even to the point where the parent... Um, I, I got a sense the parent also valued the social worker's relationship. Um, she even got a mug. Um, <laughs> I know. I love that, that she got the mug even though the children were removed. And I, and I did hear her say that, the, that she's still in contact with these children and they um, have actually let her know that it was the right decision for them and that they found their voice and that they're, despite needing some extra help, they're actually... Uh, living a life um, that sounds like a lot more, I think she used the word normal or of quality. Um, so I, I also want to kind of acknowledge her work too. I don't think it was something that would have been done without a great deal of angst and a lot of thought and care that went into working Yeah, with I think you're right, Liz. I think we really do have to honour that. I also, though, would like us to sit for a minute and acknowledge that it's wonderful when you get the feedback from the family uh, or from the individual that you've done great work with them, that's brilliant. But for all those young social workers or students listening to this, I think we have to say 
that the vast majority of social work practice doesn't go that way. That often you don't hear the end of the story, you don't uh, know what happened next. And I and I know there have been some listeners who have said to me after the stories, but what happened to that family or what happened to that person? And um, sadly, that's the reality of social work practice is that we often don't know. Um, and I'm going to go back to what I said before about the integrity of our work. You need to be able to have integrity with the practice that you are undertaking so that even if you don't get that feedback, you, you stand by the work that you did with those people in their time of need. Alleluia, sister. That was the biggest daughter moment that we could have ever done on an episode, Liz. That was the beginning of something enormous. Oh, it's going to continue. So I'm thinking this could be a theme for us this year. This could be something we come back to a bit regularly mm, about do how do social workers do this really difficult work. Child removal is just one example um, where your professional values are intersecting with your legal requirements um, and with the work of your organisation and the needs that are being expressed by your client in that scenario. Mm, this stuff that keeps you staring at the ceiling at 3am, let's talk about it more. Let's do it. I want to thank the listeners. Welcome to 2019. We're, in, we're looking forward to spending a great year with all of you. I want to thank our producers, uh, Justin Stetch and Ben Joseph. I uh, want to thank you, Liz. Welcome. Thank you, Mim, and I'll thank you right back. Excellent. And also apologies, everyone, for Maxie, our mascot in the background, meowing at different points in the episode. Have a great night, everyone. Speak to you soon. Night-night. <laughs>